Hello and welcome to Read All About It, the podcast where people talk about their favourite and not-so-favourite books. Join me, Paul Cuddihy, as I take each guest on the literary journey of their life, from their most cherished childhood read and a book they'd recommend to anyone, to the book they couldn't be paid to read again, and much more in between. So listen, enjoy, subscribe and spread the word about the Read All About It podcast. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Read All About It podcast and I'm delighted to be joined on this episode by the novelist Robbie Morrison. Now Robbie is one of the most highly regarded writers in the UK comics industry and is perhaps best known for his award-winning sci-fi adventure series Nikolai Dante and the graphic novels Drown Town and White Death. And Robbie has also scripted iconic characters in Doctor Who, Judge Dredd, Batman and Spider-Man and this year he has brought out his first novel, Edge of the Grave, a historic crime novel set in Glasgow in 1932. And as we say in these parts, it's an absolute belter. Robbie, welcome to the Read All About It podcast. Oh, thanks, Paul. Thanks for having me. And uh, can I quote you with the absolute belter there? Paul uh, Cuddy, <laughs> read all about it. I'm expecting that quote on the paperback edition of Edge <laughs> of the Grave. Worry all in big, big letters. Excellent. I mean... I think I got in touch with you after reading Edge of the Grave. I mean, it is, it's a great crime novel. I mean, there's a real blossoming of Scottish crime books at the moment, that kind of so-called tartanoir. It's quite a busy market, but also there's always seems to be room for good novels, new novels, and a new book set in, in Glasgow in the early 1930s. Uh, the first of, of what I'm touched with is Hope is a, is a long and, and productive series it's more than just a crime book. It's really absolutely captivating. And I have to say, I mean, when I said it's a belter, it really was a book that you just couldn't put down. And I think I said to you, there was a couple of twists and turns in it that really, really took me by surprise. And um, you must be delighted, I think, with the kind of reaction to your first novel. Oh, yeah, it's been terrific because obviously you do spend so much of your time writing something which you hope will be good and be well received. But you really, you know, a lot, so much of the time it's just you and the computer screen or you in your own head dreaming up these characters in this world. So um, when it eventually gets released after what seems like ages, yeah, it's great that everybody just thinks, you know, you, know, you get a positive reaction and they don't, they don't all sort of say, oh, no, not another Scottish crime novel. Go and toss it over their shoulder. So, uh, yeah, it, yeah, I'm delighted by it, yeah. Because one of the things I always think in terms of crime books and I think maybe some people that maybe don't read them, they're thinking more of the crime in a way. What engages me is the characters. That's what makes you read the book. It makes you want to read the next one in the series and the next one in the series. And I think that's what you've done with Edge of the Grave, that they take the two main characters, the two main policemen in it. As a reader, you engage with them. And I, I think that's what hooks you. And then everything else that comes around of this story that you've created in 1930s Glasgow, you're there with them and you're on that journey. And that's, I suppose that's the success or the, the secret of, of a good crime novel? Uh, yeah, I think I would agree, yeah. Especially if it's a, if it's you're, you're trying to set up a series. I mean, obviously, you hope the plot and the, the set pieces and the action and, and, and the stories are as strong as the characters. But I, I think ultimately it's the characters that people care about and that is, as you say, that's what brings them back for each book. And I think I probably learned that, partly from the fact that that's the sort of stuff I like reading is like series fiction with characters that you love and identify with. But um, when I was writing comic books, a, a lot of the time it's a, a serialized adventure that you maybe only have five or six pages each week. 
to hook the reader and bring them back with a cliffhanger ending. So really what I think grabs the attention most is if you have a really strong, powerful, likeable, or even unlikable character half the time. Sometimes it's the unlikable characters that people strangely enough like to see more of. So yeah, character's hugely important, yeah. Because your two main, the two main characters, that kind of almost like the double act of James Dreghorn and Bonnie Archie McDade. And what I liked as well is, obviously you've chosen it to set it in early 1930s Glasgow, but it links back to, you know, the First World War. And it's, I'm not sure if there's that many books that are focused on Glasgow in that period of time. And what was it that, for you, made you focus on setting your novel in, I think it's 1932? Um, I think I've always had something of a fascination for uh, the 1930s in general and in, in, in Glasgow, probably in particular, because it was the closest urban centre to where I, I grew up. I come from it's sort of four generations of my family going back, all worked in shipbuilding. And you used to hear all these stories about this, the industry, and which was obviously largely gone while I was growing up. So, you know, you would be driven along the, the, the motorway as a kid and look at the Clyde, and it just seemed fairly empty wasteland in some ways. But I would listen to my dad's stories and my uncle's stories of when the ships were there and how it was, you know, this massive industrial heartland by the River Clyde. So all these all these thoughts were always in my head. It was like, that's, that's sort of gone. And, and it just sort of... Visually, it's such a, a powerful metaphor for, you know, back in the days, slightly pre-the-30s when, you know, it was the empire and the, the age when Britain was a power and Scotland or Glasgow was the second city of the empire because of its industrial heritage and the, the ships and the locomotives. And, you know, back in the days when, you know, we used to build things that, you know, massive ocean liners that would sail across the ocean and open up the entire world. It was as if Glasgow was a gateway to the world. But all of that was gone while I was a child, but I had the stories, which almost, you know, mythical is probably too strong a word, but it was, uh, you know, they were almost fictional to me in some ways because you could look out and you couldn't see it. And at the same time as that, I think what I, I also have a, I have a real love for sort of 1930s crime fiction, such as Dashiell Hammett and Raymond Chandler and um, all the old, you know, Humphrey Bogart, James Cagney, gangster, Warner Brothers gangster movies of the 1930s as well. And I think somewhere along the way, I, I thought, wouldn't it be great to combine that sort of classic hard-boiled crime story, which you're used to seeing in New York or Los Angeles or something, but set it in a city of Glasgow in the same period, which is, you know, as a city could hold its own with anywhere else in the world. And in some ways is probably as much as a colourful character as a city as anywhere else, uh, if not even more colourful. Um, and I just always, it seemed like a, a terrific place to, to set a crime novel. Um, when you bear in mind that, especially after in the 1930s, it was, it's a city, in fact, the whole country has been scarred by the First World War and recovering from the Spanish flu pandemic, which took as many lives as the war. But then when you come into the 1930s, when, you know, after the war, everybody's, People were thinking, well, we're going to build a land fit for heroes that they, you know, they fought for something that was at the time they, they felt was worth fighting for, so that the, the future should have been bright. And then everything declines, and it's you know, it's the start of the big decline of all the heavy industries. And in 1932, Glasgow's in the grip of the depression. There's corruption and local government and government, unemployment everywhere, divisive politics, sectarianism in the streets, and 
And of course, there's the old, the, the, the razor gangs, which are terrorizing many of the, the areas. So it just, it just all struck me as it's a perfect location for a crime series, surely. Because what I, I liked about it, and I mean, I think interesting you mentioned it, it's almost like Glasgow's a, a character in the book. And obviously, I think people, no matter where you come from, I think will really enjoy it. I think as as a Glaswegian, that was one of the, the many things that I enjoyed about the book, because it, although it's like of a different time in the city, you still felt you were there and there were still landmarks and streets and places that you mentioned that were identifiable and, and you could remember it. And that's what you, that was one of the many things that I loved about it. The other thing that I thought was great is the fact that there are some real characters from the time that you've put within the book. I think the, the doctor that they deal with is a doctor called Willie Kivlikin, who uh, was a doctor at the time, had played football for both Celtic and Rangers. Uh, also, the, the chief inspector who was in charge of the police at the time was, was a real is a real character. And I think that just adds the kind of authenticity of it that there's actually, because then you can Google them afterwards and you're thinking, oh, those guys are real. And then they're so believable in the book as well. Uh, well, yeah, well, I'm glad you said that. It's always, it's always nice to hear that people sometimes find it believable. Uh, yeah, well, it was always important. I, I, I wanted to try and mix fact and fiction to a certain degree where, uh, you know, real life characters would turn up in the novels. It's like Willie Kivlikin, I just discovered in a, kind of gone down a rabbit hole of research. I can't quite remember how I got into him, but, but you find that there's this man who played for both Celtic and Rangers, as you said, back when I, I had no knowledge of any of that, as far as I remember. Mo Johnson was the first person to, to sign for, for Rangers from Celtic. So I found that in itself fascinating. And then the more I, I looked into it, I discovered that not only was that, but after his football career, he, he trained as a doctor, but he was also a a police doctor, so he carried out duties for the police force. And he also, he was the Celtic Football Club doctor at the time uh, in the early 1930s as well, which is why I, I managed to get in the, the little mention of, he was the team doctor at the time when Johnny Thompson, the Celtic goalkeeper, was injured and sadly died. And that was a story I knew from my partner, Deborah. Her, uh, she told me that because her, um, I'm going to get this wrong now, her great uncle, I think, was one of the men, he, he walked from Bathgate to... Carden Den, uh, yeah. Carden Den, and for John Thompson's funeral, as lots of, you know, hundreds of people, scores of people did from all around, of, of you know, of both religions, because it was such a tragedy. So uh, to find a character like that, it's just, it's fascinating. It sort of fitted the story in terms of the facts and everything, and I take a degree of artistic license here and there along the way, but most of it's, it's true, and whenever I've tried to incorporate a real-life character, I've hopefully treated them respectfully and the facts are all, you know, as you say, if you Google them, you'll discover that that's, that's the case. It was the same with Percy Silito again. He was, a, he was one of the pivotal figures uh, in this period in the early 1930s when um, quite controversially the, to try and clean up the streets. And at the time, the Corporation of Glasgow appointed Percy Silito, an Englishman, you know, shock horror, to lead, you know, a great Glasgow institution like the Glasgow Police. And they brought him in because of his, he had success in breaking, breaking up a lot of gangs in Sheffield. So they figured they really needed to take radical action to try and sort of uh, do the same in Glasgow because of the, the bad press they were getting all over the country. And Silito basically, he recruited the biggest, toughest police officers he could find, often from, you know, as in the case of you know, Bonnie Archibald Dade, from the Highlands and Islands. He sort of streamlined the police force. He introduced... The uh, a, a network of police boxes throughout the city where I think, I mean, 
there's still one in Buchanan Street, if I remember correctly, and I think there's still one uh, outside the Botanic Gardens, isn't there? Yeah, I think they might be used as, co- as like we mini no, coffee, coffee shops. Coffee I think. shops now, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So he was the he he brought all that, and so it's great that you know something this this guy a hundred years ago virtually founded in the city that these things are still here. Silatoy was always in it. He's always another interesting character in that the black and white checkered band that in police uniforms all over the country. That was another of Silatoy's ideas. He said it was called Silatoy's Tartan. It was set up so that people could easily identify uniformed police officers at nighttime or in the dark. And the other thing he did, which is crucial to Edge of the Grave, my novel, is he set up what was essentially the Britain's first flying squad, which was basically pairing, you know, plain clothes detectives together and, uh, and they would patrol the city in radio cars at a, a faster response times. Again, this was quite controversial at the time because he had, I think he had uh, learned about these cars, the radio cars, on a trip to Chicago. So I think the corporation of Glasgow being tight-fisted at the time were a bit taken aback by that, that he was, that was one of his, he insisted upon for taking the job in the first place that he, he would be allowed to use these cars. This squad that he put together, they were nicknamed the Untouchables by the press after the, the, the squad of FBI agents in Chicago that Elliot Ness had put together to sort of try and take down Al Capone. And obviously I've embellished this, as I've called, called them the Tartan Untouchables in the novel, because it, which was a quip from, again, from a partner of Deborah, suggesting I thought that's a nice nickname for them. Because I, I think, as I say, I, I mean, I loved reading it. I, I think it's, when I say it's a historical crime novel, I think for people, particularly some people who, who are from the city, but then beyond, I like the way that you you also give almost like, you know, for example, the history of and the makeup of the gangs and the kind of geography of them. There's a sense of people are getting to know the city and, and its character as well as going on this journey with these two detectives trying to solve, you know, the crimes that they're investigating. I think that works really well. Well, it's always important that Glasgow itself was as big a character as anybody else. And hopefully it's what it might also bring to it is that obviously Glasgow nowadays is a very different city from Glasgow of the 1930s. I mean, vast waves of the city have been knocked down and bulldozed. So some of the areas that are in the novel are no longer there. Or, you know, street names have been changed. Many things are completely different. So hopefully in some ways, even people who are familiar with Glasgow as it is nowadays will find something new in the book or, that they, or read something that they hadn't known about in the past. And sometimes that's even for my, works out even for myself as well, because at uh, one point when I, when I used to live in Glasgow, I was living in St Andrew's Square just off the High Street at the time. Now St Andrew's Church, which was still there, was designed by an architect in the 17th, 18th century, an architect called Alan Dreghorn, which is where I got the name for the lead character, Jimmy Dreghorn, from. But at the same time, I was across the road from St Andrew's Church, and basically if I looked out the window where I was staying, across the road there was, a, there was an empty building. At the time, I didn't know this, but it was the Turnbull Street Central Police Headquarters, which is where the two characters are based in the in the novel, which is just one of these sheer coincidences that I was living there at that time with ideas to write a, a Glasgow thriller at some point in the future. But looking back, I never realised I was actually living across the road from what had become one of the major locations in the book. Otherwise, I'd have been sneaking in and looking around <laughs> and taking lots of research photographs. It was obviously it was obviously meant to be. Well, um, yeah. 
obviously in the, in the course of the podcast we'll no doubt chat some more about Edge of the Grave but um, in terms of taking you on a, a literary journey of your life which I like to do with each guest and ask you to choose first of all your your favourite book from childhood and the book that you've chosen and, and again like a lot of guests you've already told me in advance how difficult it is to to choose the books in each category um, but the one for this one you've chosen is a book called Biggles and the Cruise of the Condor by Captain W.E. Johns. And what was it about that book that's that's the one that you've chosen for this? Well, yeah, as you see, this is I'm probably choosing the childhood one was probably the hardest because uh, as a kid, I was very into it. I, a lot of the stuff I read, I used to devour series of books. Like Edith Blyton's The Famous Five or The Secret Seven, or I was a big fan of the Doctor Who novels that there were adaptations of the... The, the TV series by the likes of Terrence Sticks and things like that. And obviously Treasure Island by Robert Louis Stevenson was the one that I almost, you know, that was the one I thought, oh, should I choose that? But it came back to the, the Biggles. I've chosen Biggles and the Cruise of the Condor, mainly because I think it's the book that really started me reading. Prior to that, as a, as a child, I used to love reading comics. That's what I was reading most of the time. And there was one, the one point I'd been left at my granny's uh, in the Renton, and whatever had happened, I had read all the comics I'd had. It would have been a really wet, miserable, dreary Saturday afternoon, you know. Grandstand would have been on with the horse racing, there'd have been some musical or something on BBC Two, something that's just not going to hold the attention of a six or seven year old. And, you know, it's like nobody gets bored like a six or seven year old back in 1973 when there was. You know, you don't have your computer, you don't have the internet, you don't have anything. I, I was basically stuck, and, and I think my granny said to me, well, go in that room there and just choose a book off the shelf and read it. And I walked into the there, and there's this big, dark bookshelf full of all these dull-looking books that don't even have sleeves or pictures or anything. So I sort of I very reluctantly picked up Biggles and the Cruise of the Condor, mainly because of the word Condor probably sort of took my attention. I went down, sat down, and, okay, I'm going to read it really reluctantly. And within about three minutes, I was absolutely hooked. Three pages in, was like, wow, you know. Biggles, who was a, for anybody who isn't familiar with him, was a sort of ex-World uh, War I fighter pilot who then went on to have hundreds and hundreds of adventures afterwards. But this one, he goes to visit his uncle in Sussex. Within two pages, an American gangster with a revolver has turned up, held it on Biggles, and I'm thinking, oh, this, this sounded quite childlike. This was, was what I was expecting. And next minute, Biggles cracks him over the head with a brick, which I wasn't expecting in what was a children's book. And then other people are shooting at them. And then they go off, cut along to the shot. They end up going off in this massive adventure chasing lost ink gold in South America in an amphibious plane called the Condor. I just thought it was fantastic. It just opened up. It just that it's how, you know, you can become completely immersed in a book and it's probably that was the first time that happened to me and yeah it just it opened up the entire world of books to me after that you mentioned that you know you obviously read a lot of, of series I haven't read that book did that because I think there's about 98 books in, in the, the series I think that, there's even more yeah did that make you then go and try and read as many of them as you could after that oh of course because then it becomes a challenge you need to try and read them all you know so you're going to the library and and asking them for your for them for your birthday and stuff. I don't think I ever read them all, but um, I had a fair crack of the whip. Um, and I mean, I, I realise nowadays probably I don't know. There's probably 
criticism of, you know, it's they're probably in terms of their attitudes and the way they describe just all stiff upper lip and British Empire and it, it's that I, I suspect some of the terms that are used for, you know, other nationalities and stuff, not politically correct these days in some ways, but as a six or seven year old kid, you know nothing of that. And obviously it's of its time as well. So uh, I just read it and thought it was a fantastic adventure. How many in the series do you reckon that you managed to get through then? Probably reckon I managed about 50 odd. I think some of them, probably some of them were out of print or some of them were. I, I couldn't tell you beyond Biggles and the Cruise of the Condor, which was the first one I read, probably they all blur into the same thing eventually. You know, it, it's it's probably the same story. Don't tell uh, Captain W.E. Jones that. <laughs> That's impressive if you've read 50 odd, but I suppose... It's, it's something that always strikes me when, you know, when you're talking to people about their childhood books and, you know, you mentioned the fact if it's a series, once you discover as a child a series of books yourself, it's that excitement of knowing that mm-hmm. you can almost replicate the, the experience again and again and again. And that's, yeah, yeah. That, that hooks you then as a, as a, almost like a kind of lifetime reader from that point on. Yeah, well, I'm hoping it works for adults as well with my uh, trying to embark on writing a series of crime thrillers. I'm hoping... I'm hoping I don't still get that same thrill from things. I know I do. I mean, certainly I follow series books to this day, definitely. Particularly in that crime genre, that's there's a secret to that of, you know, I mentioned right at the start that when you're when I was reading Edge of the Grave, you're already hoping that there's going to be another book because you've once you've engaged with those characters, you're thinking, right, what happens next? What what else are they doing? That's the challenge for you. That's what we've got to look forward to as readers. Yeah, well, I do have a plan. I've got quite a few ideas in mind for the future books, and it's 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 something I've been kind of used to from the uh, background of writing comics because I, I wrote a, a comic book series called The Adventures of Nikolai Dante, sort of about the adventures of a Russian thief in a, you know the twenty seventh century Russia, and I wrote that for about fifteen years, and so you know never ran out of ideas, and so uh, I'm hoping I can do the same with the crime thriller. Excellent. Well, that's that's good news for me and everyone else that's, uh, that's read Edge of the Grave already that we can look forward. We'll not put pressure on you as to when the next one's coming out, but at least we know that there's another one coming well, out. I, I'm, I'm enjoying working on it at the moment and fingers crossed it won't be too long. Well, listen, I'm going to look forward to that. From uh, your childhood book, if I can take you on to your kind of favourite teenage formative years book and the one that you've chosen which actually, interestingly, if I was had if I had to pick the books for those categories, it's the same one that I would have chosen, and that's Catch Twenty Two by Joseph Heller. And uh, why that book? Well, interestingly enough, of all the, the the book choices, this is this was the one I didn't particularly have to think about. This was the one I just went, "Oh, it's Catch Twenty Two. I, I think as in as in the same way with Biggles, whereas it opened opened me up to the world of reading. I think Catch Twenty Two was one of those novels that just opened my mind to the potential of novels, if that makes any sense, and that, you know, they could deal with such big issues and, and also but not do it in a, a linear fashion because obviously Catch-22 jumps. Up to that point, I was probably used to reading books. Well, this is the start, this is the middle, this is the end. Fairly linear and straightforward, whereas Catch-22 is all over the place. It flashes forward, it flashes backwards. It's almost surreal in many ways and it, it deals with, well, it's almost as if it deals with everything, but it does it in a darkly comic way. Sometimes it's tragic, sometimes it's hilarious. I just thought it was a, a fantastic novel. And the whole thing, I mean, the very fact that the title has become, you know, 
into the sort of lexicon of the, the, the language these days. It's just that great. Catch-22. I don't know how often I probably use the phrase at least once a month, if not more, to describe something ridiculous about society, you know, or politics or the way the world works. It's like you just shrug and say, that's Catch-22, isn't it? So it's just a great novel. Because it's funny, I think, because I think originally, when I was just doing a wee bit of research on it, I think it was originally he had it as Catch-18, and then there was a, a Leon Uris book that came out, Mila-18, so the publisher said, well, that, we don't want to confuse. And then 17 was ruled out, because I think, I don't know if it was a film in the book, Stalag 17, and then eventually yeah. they kind of focused on Catch-22, and as you say, it's become it's mm. become more than just the novel, and now you can't think, well, there's no way... Catch 18 wouldn't have sounded right. It's got to yeah, be. Yeah, no, that's what totally. I could confidently predict that Catch 18 wouldn't have been a hit. It just, it's just the way, you know, sometimes the way words run together and the sound of them. Catch 22, it, it just works. Because I, I studied that book. That was the book I got in fifth year at school. Um, how did you come to the book? Did you just end up reading it yourself? I think my uncle John gave me it to read. And it was a very, I don't, I don't have the copy anymore. But it must have been one of the, you know, from the, the 60s or the early 70s anyway with that. I can still see the cover in my head, which was a very black and white one big letters, Catch-22 with the face of uh, obviously the Syrian, the lead character, sort of going ah, and, and screaming why? And uh, it's just, it was a striking cover. I mean, I was probably, I don't know, maybe 14, 15 at the time. So, um, so I was quite proud of myself, looking back, I'm quite proud of myself that I'm, I, I read it and took it in and it had such a, you know, almost a profound effect on me. And um, I, I've read it, you know, numerous times over the years. It's one of these books that has I have felt differently about on other occasions. It's like, I distinctly remember the first time I read it, certain things that I found hilarious when I read it a few years later. The things I found hilarious, I now found sad and tragic. And vice versa, things I found sad and the first time I read it, I now found funny. And it, it's strange the way, you know, obviously... As you change, whether it's your perception of the books that changes, I, I don't know, or it's whether the books themselves change as the times change. It's, a, it's weird. But strangely enough, the last time I tried to read it, a couple of years ago, I thought, yeah, it's about time I read Catch-22 again. And I couldn't get into it, so I don't quite know whether I, I couldn't get past the first few pages. So I think, um, I think I will have to try and read it again, but I, I don't quite know why that is. Because there's always that worry, especially if you've got a book from when you're younger that you absolutely adore, that if you do read it at a different time in your life, because obviously, well, as you mentioned, you'll have a different reaction. Mm. The one worry is that does that spoil, if, if you don't enjoy it as much the second or third time of reading it, does that spoil your, your earlier enjoyment? Or can that still be set in stone as of its time and, and what it meant to you at that period and, and when you were only like 14? I think it still remains what it was when you were that age when you read it, because it's it's natural that we all change and view things differently. Um, I, I suspect it's very rare that there are books that you read, if you reread them many years later, that I suspect it's rare that you feel the same or get the same thrill or, from them. I mean, I suspect if I read, you know, Biggles and the Cruise of the Condor now, I'd be going, Captain W. John, no, you can't, use the, <laughs> you can't use that term anymore. You can't call people that. I suspect I'd find it all very, you know, stiff upper lip English and, you know, it's all... Biggles and Ginger and Algae and Bertie and, you know, I, I, I couldn't, you know, would drive me up the wall now, I suspect. But as a kid, I, I thought it was terrific. You mentioned that you haven't managed to keep a copy. I, when I say in inverted commas, acquired the copy that I had in fifth year at school, which I still have. 
So technically I stole it, but it's still got it. No, even just as a physical thing, whenever I, I see it in the bookshelves, it takes me back to being yeah, fifth yeah. year at school and studying and how much we all loved it. And so I, I'm, I'm glad, sadly, that I did steal it. Yeah, no, I, I'm sure I lent my copy of Catch-22 to a friend and it never it never came back. And then, the, 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 you know, sort of like, no, you never, you never gave me that. You never <laughs> lent me that, you know, 10 years later. So, um, did you ever read the the sequel, Closing Time? I haven't. No, I mean to be honest, I haven't read an awful lot of Joseph Heller's other books. I haven't read the sequel. I mean, so I've had mixed. Some people have told me you should. It's really good, and other people have said, no, no I can't. Well, do you know, I've I've never read it myself, and it's just I, I, again when I was just doing some kind of research ahead of our chat, and I thought. I'm going to read it because I read mm. Catch Twenty Two again a couple of years ago for the first time, I think, since since school. Yeah, kind of similar to what you were saying. I still really enjoyed it, but a different reaction to different parts mm. of the book. Mm. But I quite like to see what he did with the sequel now. It's just it's, it's, it's one of those books. It's, you think so? Surely it's almost impossible to write a sequel to it because once you take the characters out of the World War Two setting and just that you know chaotic the chaotic existence they had. And, and, and put it into it because I think the book set is they're all old men, isn't it? And they're yeah. you know, living in you know New York City as businessmen or something. I, I don't know what I have thought about it. I mean, but I've, I think I only ever read one of these other novels. I think I read Something Happened, which I think Heller himself, I might be wrong here, but I think he said that was his favorite novel. But it's just such a completely different book to Catch 22. It's about, you know, I think from what I remember, it's, it's sort of about fatherhood and this, the guy living a mundane life, is working his job and he's dealing with his family and such and such. But I suppose in some ways maybe that was, maybe in some ways that links to Heller's experiences in World War II. I'm sure he was there, wasn't he? Yeah, um, yeah, he was. Maybe that's just it, you know, when you when you leave that kind of heightened, you know, reality of excitement and, and boredom and, and horror and then just go into your ordinary humdrum everyday life, maybe that's, maybe he was trying to capture the reality of that or the, the mundanity even of that after so just the wild the wildness of Catch-22. Well, you are listening to the Read All About It podcast with me, Paul Cuddy, and my guest today is novelist Robbie Morrison. Robbie, we're on to your third book choice, and that is a book that you would recommend to anyone. And interestingly, this is the second time in the last two or three weeks in the podcast that this book has been recommended. One of the other guests, Vicky Riley, chose this book, The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay by Michael Chabon. And what was it about uh, this book that has, has made you choose it as one to recommend? This is the one I probably did have trouble with because when you think about books you recommend to people, it was a hummed and hawed between William McIlvany's Doherty or Laidlaw which I often recommend to people, or Gorky Park by Martin Cruz Smith, which I just always you know, one of my favourite thrillers. But I just, I, I felt the, the Adventures of Cavalier and Clay, when I read it, I, I thought at the time it was one of the best novels I have read for a long time. I, I suppose perhaps because it made quite a big impact on me. I think perhaps because I, I read so much crime fiction that when I then, sometimes if I pick up something else, it can seem fresher. But again, I think in Cavalier and Clare, also what I also harked back to in some ways is my own comic book writing because the two, two lead characters, uh, Joseph Cavalier and Samuel Clay, 
are uh, a comic artist and a comic writer, respectively, who, who hook up in the World War II in Brooklyn, and they create uh, a comic book character called The Escapist, who is essentially, it's, The Escapist becomes their way of fighting World War II and standing up to Hitler, because um, Joseph Cavalier is... He's come to America from Prague just to escaping the Nazis, but his family are back there, so he's he's only come over on his own. And it's just about how it's about the power of creativity and, and it's about storytelling and love and war and uh, bigotry and, and the politics of the time. It's it's one of these. I think I like books that have got everything in them. It's about a little like Catch Twenty Two. They deal with big issues, but I think what's lovely about Cavalier and Clay is. It does it with a hell of a lot of humour, as does Catch-22. It has a real warmth about the characters. And obviously, like as you said, Age, Edge of the Grave, what you liked was that a real-life character turned up into it. Because Cavalier and Clay is set uh, around about the comic book industry, which was the golden age of the comic book industry at the time, characters like Will Eisner, who created Spirit, and uh, Stan Lee, who, who then went on to create Spider-Man, The Hulk and The Fantastic Four, all turned up as characters in the novel, working for the, working for the comics company that Cavalier and Clay also worked for. I suppose that just probably tapped into my, my own sort of career as a comic book writer at the time. And it was nice to see it treated in this Pulitzer Prize winning novel as a, I mean, it's almost treated heroically. It's like they're, you know, they're, they're struggling against the businessmen who run the company and trying to get out these stories that inspire people. It just, yeah, it just really struck a chord with me. And possibly why it's the book I've recommended most to people, because I know a lot of uh, comics writers and artists. Uh, and whenever a lot of artists, sometimes if they ask for a recommendation, it's the case of what, read this, because it's kind of about the industry you work in, albeit way back in the day. But it's almost a bit, it's, it's also about so much more, you know, it's about the glorious storytelling as well and how important stories can be. It's also interesting in that one of the characters, the, the artist Cavalier, he grows to feel that even though they're writing these stories, which are selling, selling by the millions and they're inspiring people about, the, you know, for propaganda against the war and they're inspiring people to fight against the Nazis. He actually feels that though he's, all he's doing is sitting drawing a comic book that, that he doesn't feel is, he really is contributing to the war effort. So he, he ends up quitting the comic book and joins American Air Force, if I remember correctly, and goes off to fight in the war. But really, at the end of it, you think well, what he was doing is probably more important as part of the bigger picture. Just he feels he has to do, feels he really has to do something personally to avenge his family in some ways. It's just, it's a, it's a terrific novel. Because I was going to ask you, actually, you know, obviously you, you spent a lot of years, you know, mentioned that as a comic book writer. I mean, how did how did that come about? And I also wondered, you know, you mentioned earlier on that you'd kind of, as a child, started reading comics. Was there times that you, you were kind of pinching yourself, thinking back to that wee guy who's reading comics and suddenly that's your job, that's what you're involved in, you're involved in that industry, that and that's part of who you are and you're, you're creating comics that other people are reading? Oh, yeah, you get the, I think you do get that buzz, yeah. I think the, the, the one time, probably the best time I, I kind of got that thrill from working in comics was I first started reading comics. My, my, my grandfather he used to buy me comics before I was you know, old enough to even read them. And my grandfather would buy me comics and my grandmother would read them to me. And, uh, and one of the ones they bought was uh, called Countdown and TV Action, which 
this is way back in the very early 70s. It used to do adaptations of television series such as Mission Impossible and UFO and Doctor Who. One of the artists who used to draw Mission Impossible, and it was a, a fellow called John Burns. He's just a fantastic artist. And I ended up working with him near enough 40 years later while I was working in the Clyde Dante. He was, along with um, Simon Fraser, he was one of the artists who, who ended up working in that. So it was a real thrill to think, well, I'm working with this genius artist and veteran of the industry that I used to get his comics read to me when I was two years old or three years old. Uh, so yeah, that was a real that was a real big thrill, yeah. But as for getting into comics, that was probably I think when I left college, I realised I wanted I wanted to try and write anyway, try my hand at writing. I'd been a big reader of comics up to last probably about twelve or thirteen, and then kind of fell away from it. So when I started, I gave me a deal with my dad at the time after I finished college that I would spend uh, either a year or two years writing and submitting stuff and seeing if and if. If at the end of that, if during that time I had sold something, then, you know, that's fair enough. You, you might have a chance here. So comics, I was I was trying my hand at writing television scripts, writing radio scripts. Uh, I wrote the first few chapters of a novel that is thankfully long lost now. It wouldn't, you know, if you, you wouldn't have wanted to read that one. A friend at the time showed me some of the, the more recent comics that were around, like Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons' Watchmen and Frank Miller's The Dark Knight Returns. I read them and thought, oh, this could be another avenue for, for writing. So I started writing comic scripts and, and sending them off. And uh, it was just luck that comics was the first sort of medium that actually started buying stories off me. And obviously, once somebody buys something off you, know that it was a vast amount of money by any means. Once you get a check, you think, well, I'll channel my endeavours in this area. Because DC Thompson were the first, the first company that bought a, a script off me at the time for a science fiction comic book series they used to do called Starblazers, which was the same as the, you know, the little digest commando books that they still publish. Well, back in the days of Star Wars, they, they did a science fiction line to sort of cash in on the popularity of science fiction at the time. Uh, and that was the first thing that they bought. So I, I wrote a few of them, but I suppose I got a, an introduction to how harsh the world of publishing can be sometimes in that I probably wrote about seven or eight of these Starblazer stories, which were, you know, 64-page comics. And then they cancelled the comic but the week before my first one was due to get published. So none of them ever saw the light of day. It was a bit of hard. It was like, oh, this could be quite a tough business, I guess. But, but then after that, that's when I started, uh, you know, I started writing scripts for Judge Dredd and 2080 and then Nikolai Dante and Doctor Who, that sort of stuff. But all along the way, I, I sort of realised probably what my main love was crime fiction. As I was saying earlier about all the 1930s Dasho Hammett, uh, Raymond Chandler, and in some ways that was that was what I had always wanted to do. And, you know, after suddenly 20 years have passed of working in the comic book industry and you sort of think, well, I enjoy it and it's a, it's a great medium for storytelling. You sort of think, I mean, there was there was other things I wanted to do. And so I just thought it's time to try my hand at finally writing a crime thriller. And in some ways, while comics are a great medium for storytelling, I think for the particular story of Dreghorn and McDade in, in Glasgow in the 1930s, it just seemed that the, the best way to tell that story was to do it in a novel. So um, I, I took the plunge and uh, had a bash. And it's out. It's also very cinematic, I think, your novel. You know, the city, sometimes even just those scenes where they, you know, where the, the detectives are going into the club to, you know, and, and as part of the investigations, there's just, it's very visual that you can actually, I could see that on a big screen or even 
sitting in my in my house watching it on TV. Well, finger, fingers crossed. Once the book's out, you just never know yeah, where yeah. that journey is going to take you. But it's interesting you say that because I think in some ways that might be, if you get that visual feel from it, that might have in some ways came from the, the background in writing comics because obviously when you're doing writing comics, it's more about writing a film script or a screenplay. That's, that's the sort of general format. Whereas, you know, the, you break the story down into each individual panel and, you, you know, you describe the action in the panel and the dialogue and, and that script then goes to the artist to draw. So it's a lot of the descriptive passages in a, in a comic script are quite conversational as if, you know, as if I'm just describing something to you, you know, like a, I might describe a, a castle somewhere as, you know, it, it looks like Dracula's summer home or something. And you would hopefully, that would in, inspire the artist to come up with a visual and then they bring, you know, their artistic sense to the to the actual finished comic book. But obviously, while you're writing a novel, you're still trying to get into the, the reader's head and paint those pictures as well. And, you know, the reader's imagination is probably one of the best tools a writer has. If you can spark the reader's imagination and bring them along with you, then I think you can do pretty much anything. I mean, and I try, I mean, I've, I've only described Dreghorn and McDade in the book in quite broad strokes and, that you know, Dreghorn's possibly the shortest police officer in the, in the force, whereas McDade is probably the biggest police officer in the force. So you get this little and large feel from them. I don't really describe them too much beyond that because I sometimes like to think probably every reader has their, their own version of Dreghorn and McDade in their heads when they're reading. Or, in, you know, as in with, with any other series of novels or characters, each reader's version of the character is almost their own personal version of it, if that makes sense. Well, I, I always say if, um, if there's any film producers that are listening to this podcast, then I think you should be looking at Edge of the Grave. I also thought one of the Adrian McKinty gives a great quote on the back cover. Uh, he's obviously, you know, he's just going from strength to strength. Oh, yeah, in, no. Ter- in terms of his novel writing, but he described it as Peaky Blinders meets William McIlvany in a, a rollicking, riveting read. And I just thought, I mean, that's, those are bold words, but and actually when you read it, you think, fair play to him. Well, no, I was obviously delighted with that quote because it's like, in, in many ways, it's what I was sort of aiming for. And, and the nice thing is, I think, I think Adrian's was one of the first quotes that came in when the book, the advanced reading copies went out to people. And you're sort of thinking, oh, that's when you're thinking, oh, is anybody going to like this? Is anybody going to read it? And Adrian's quote came in just remarkably quickly. He only came back in a few days with this quote. And it was like, oh, wow, excellent. Well, do you know what I thought was funny about the quote? Because when I watched Peaky Blinders and I liked it up to the point where the Billy Boys appeared in the series because it was hopeless and miscast because the, the main character, I think he was Irish, but he really mm-hmm. struggled with the Glaswegian accent to the point where it was it was really, it was making my ears bleed and I thought I can't watch it anymore because it was it just was so inauthentic. And when I was reading your book and obviously, particularly with the gangs, it was making me laugh in a way because I thought, Oh, thank God, there's proper Glaswegian accents in this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that, that's the other quote for the, the paperback, even better than Peaky Blinders. Well, I would take that one as well. I mean, as much, <laughs> as, much as I like Peaky Blinders. Well, we're on to the, the fourth book choice, which is, again, it's always a tough one, going from a book that you'd recommend to anyone. It's a book that you couldn't be paid to read again. And that's always a subjective thing, but the book that you've kind of said that isn't for you or wasn't for you was Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. Yeah, which ironically was it not recently voted the best novel ever written or the, the favourite novel ever written in some poll in the last few years. 
Probably. I've never read it either. I've, it passed me by at the time as a teenager, and I don't think yeah. I'll ever... I suspect if you like fantasy, fantasy novels, if you like elves and goblins and dragons and talking trees that can uproot themselves and walk about, if you like that sort of thing, then I read the, I, I read the first in the trilogy. I sort of forced myself to go through it at the end of it because so many people kept saying, oh, you should read The Lord of the Rings. And I tried and it's it's just not for me. I'm, I'm not a big fan of fantasy sort of stuff. So I'm probably not the right audience for it anyway. You know, that sort of thing where it's like, oh, they've gone and made nine magic rings. And you sort of think, well, how do you make a magic ring? Oh, you know, how do you? <laughs> and it just, it just never, it just never got me. It, it reminds me, um, a, a friend of mine, uh, Jeff Senior, a storyboard artist and comic artist as well. He kind of encountered, he went to the, the Lord of the Rings the, when the, the Peter Jackson films came out. I mean, Peter Jackson, you know, Tremendous film director, but uh, I think my pal Jeff went in and after walked out after 10 minutes because he was looking at it and is looking at the hobbits and he says, Well, look, they live in these lovely houses that are carved into the into the into the mountains and they're all they've got horses and carts and clothes and swords and this like, why can't they make themselves any shoes? And he just I can't believe this. It's, it's, you know, and, and just ended up leaving after it. And I think. I find the suspension of disbelief in fantasy novels for the for the major part. I just they just don't work for me. And I'm sure there are people out there who'll be saying that's rich coming from him who wrote, you know, he wrote the Adventures of Nikolai Dante. That's the most implausible science fiction nonsense that you've ever read. But you tried to build in science fiction explanations for things, whereas in fantasy, it's just oh, it happens because it's magic. It's just no. But I've always felt, I, mean, I don't read a lot of science fiction, but the science fiction I have read, it's a believable world. It's, mm. As long as the world is all believable and, and you know wherever it's set, then when you're reading it and you've bought into that, then everything makes sense in that world, which is different mm. from fantasy because there's almost a leap of imagination to get to the point in fantasy that you, that you need to. I completely agree. That's probably my, you know, and I don't read a lot of science fiction these days, but you're right. As as long as that world has its own logic and it makes sense in that world, then that's fine. But yeah, the yeah, fantasy stuff has just uh, yeah. escaped me. Well, in terms of the, the podcast, we're on to the fifth and final question. And it's either the last book you read or the book you're currently reading. You had given me an original choice, which we'll talk about in a, in a wee minute, but a book that you're going to be reading, but the book that you're currently reading it's a book by Dominic Donald called Breathe, which was the Sunday Times Crime Book of the Year in 2018. And it sounds, I just read the wee synopsis of it, it sounds a great novel. It looks like it's the first in, in what I'm presuming you're hoping is, will be a series of novels. Uh, well, yeah, I hope so. The, the second one hasn't appeared yet. I, I think he is working on it. it. It's actually a novel as well that I, when it came out in 2018 and I read the reviews, I thought, oh, that sounds right up my street, basically. But I kind of put off reading it because I was at the time I was deep in writing Edge of the Grave, where you know it's very different time periods. Breathe is set in, in London in the in the 1950s, and it's the you know the days of the Christie murders and the Pea Supers. And whereas Edge of the Grave is 1930s Glasgow, very different time periods. But just I thought, well, I won't. I'll, I'll avoid reading that for the moment. But I had always kept in the back of my head that I did want to, to pick it up. So. Um, yeah, I'm reading that, sort of working my way through that at the moment and really enjoying it. It's just a terrific, 
lovely atmosphere. He captures the the feel of London in that period and the sort of the the, the oppressiveness of the the peace supers and the police and, and the, he just really brings that world to life tremendously well. And it takes its time. It sort of for a crime novel, it's it's not slowly paced, but it takes time to build the characters and 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 build the world that they live in. Even so, it's yeah, I'd highly recommend it. Actually, yeah. You'd mentioned, I think, before that you you do read a lot of crime fiction, but interestingly, you also mentioned the fact that when you're you're in the midst of writing your own book, is it better for you then not to be reading crime fiction because it then becomes a distraction or it's putting things into your head that you don't want to because you're focused on your own story at the time? That would probably be a very good idea, but I love crime fiction so much that I can't. Despite if I'm reading other stuff, I'll always have some crime fiction novel on the go. I suppose what I had, I have noticed myself doing when I've been writing Edge of the Grave and the follow-up, apart from Breathe at the moment, which I'm reading, I've probably tried to avoid historical crime stuff, or stuff set in the 30s, the, the 40s, the 50s, that kind of. I've probably tried to avoid that and read more just contemporary crime fiction. And I don't really know why, that's probably daft, really, you know, but I have noticed myself doing that. Yeah, because I've spoken to other writers who don't read, you know, for example, if they're in the middle of writing a novel, they maybe don't read a lot of fiction because mm. they, they want all their thoughts in that respect to be on what they're working on and they'll maybe read other non-fiction books or just something that's completely different because, you know, as you know, you because your total concentration is on that book that you're working on as well. Oh, yeah, you, yeah. You, you know, you don't want uh, distractions. Interestingly, you know, the other book that you've mentioned that you're planning to read is Lonesome Dove by Larry McMurtry, who sadly just passed away just not long before we were, we were recording this podcast. Yeah, it's just one of these. I, I have read it. I've read Lonesome Dove before, and um, probably about this time last week, I, I was passing, as I often do, passing the bookshelf, saw it on there and thought, oh, Lonesome Dove, I haven't read that for a while. And picked it up and started flicking through it, so I thought, should read that again and then a couple of days later I heard about Larry McMurty's death and so you sort of think okay that's that's probably a sign that yeah my instinct was right I'm going to read that next and I I, I was going to choose that as the one for the final the final book choice but um, I haven't actually got around to to reading it yet it's just another great novel that um, it has everything in it again I, I keep coming back to this I like a book that's got everything deals with big themes and adventure and I think it at the same time Lonesome Dove, even though it's a very realistic book and feels accurate historically, it also sort of captures the feel of, uh, you know, the classic westerns that you used to watch on TV as a kid, which we all know are fairly fantastic when it, you know, it's, you know the real west wasn't like that. But I think um, Murphy manages to capture your affection for those sort of westerns with the reality of it and, and just put together again another, another wonderful, sprawling novel. It's actually not a... A, a book that I've actually read and because interestingly I've always I think I say this just about every guest that when you give me your choices there's always something on it and I think given the fact that somebody else has recommended the, the Michael Chabon book I'm, I'm definitely going to have to read that because that's that's two strong recommendations we're almost sadly a, a time in the podcast I, I suppose I just wanted to to finish off again just come back to Edge of the Grave we were speaking just before we, we started recording that there's a difficulty just now as, as anybody who's bringing out a book because you're having to do everything remotely on Zoom, online. I suppose, I, I mean, I'm, I'm keeping my fingers crossed as, as a reader, and I'm sure you are as, as a writer, that as things start to open up, you'll be able to actually get out into bookshops to go to festivals, to talk about your book. 
and then also interact with that readership that's building with the novel. Oh yeah, no, it, it'd be great to get back to um, some sense of normality and and yeah, you know, meet people face to face and talk about. And let's just just walk into a bookshop and browse and pick up the books and well, pick up the books and flick through them and then put them in the quarantine area for you know and, and have them sprayed by disinfected. Um, I mean, it's still going to be a strange. I think this is with us for this is with us for a long time to come. But hopefully, we will get back to that point of a degree of normality. And and yes, just I mean, I have missed. I mean, the amount of times I, I can rarely walk past a bookshop without getting in and just having a you know just having a look around. Or but I think what has has been very heartening about it all, of course, is that I think a lot of people have discovered reading again as a way to pass the time. Book sales. Fingers crossed from what I can gather and what I've read. You know, book sales are still fairly high through all this period, albeit through different outlets. So I'm hoping that that is something that, you know, if there's one good thing to come out of COVID, that it may well have opened some people's minds to the, the joys of reading again. Well, I know that's probably grasping at straws with all the, the horrors and tragedies that everybody's had from it. But if that is one good thing that can come out of it, then you have to hope that's the case. And nice as well when you when you do go back into bookshops that not only you'll be browsing other people's books, but you'll be able to see your own book up in the bookshelves, which will I'm sure will be a, a big thrill as well. Oh, you will be. In fact, you will know if I've been in a bookshop because when you go in, you won't be able to see anybody else's books because <laughs> I'll just have been picking mine up and putting it in front of everyone's, you know. No, it's quite right. We'll go in and go, what the hell is this? You know, <laughs> yeah, they'll know you've been in the shop. Yeah. Well, I am. Um, I'm keeping my fingers crossed for continued uh, success for Edge of the Grave, Robbie. As I said at the start, I, I mean, I really enjoyed the book. I think towards the end of the book, there's two or three twists in it, which I think certainly took me by surprise, and which was brilliant. And I, I think people will really enjoy that in the book. But I have to say, it's I've really enjoyed chatting to you about Edge of the Grave and, and some of your book choices on the podcast today. Oh, you're welcome, Paul. No, it's been a, it's been great fun. Yeah, and I'm glad you didn't notice any twists coming because uh, when you read the book, because it's one of these things as a writer, you're writing things and it's like, you've been living with these twists or surprises since day one. So it's like, they're the most obvious thing coming for a, to you as a writer. So to hear that some people, you, it came as a surprise, then it's like, whew, breathe a sigh of relief. And I'm really looking forward to the paperback coming out with my, my quote on it now. It's a belter. <laughs> Paul Cuddy, he read all about it. Yeah, I'll make sure it's on there, definitely. Thanks for listening to the Read All About It podcast, and I'd love to hear what you thought about it. You can get in touch via Twitter at ReadAllAbout20, on Instagram at ReadAllAboutItPodcast, or you can send an email to ReadAllAboutIt at PaulCuddehy.com. If you've enjoyed the podcast, subscribe, leave a review and spread the word. If you haven't enjoyed it, say nothing to anybody. But I do hope you can join me, Paul Cuddihy, next time on the Read All About It podcast. And in the meantime, keep reading.